Heavenly Father, we thank you for the ability to gather together to be reminded of your great love. That in song, we've, we've already adored you for the great exchange that you were willing to make. That in your love, you were willing to protect us. You were willing to send your son to be a substitute for us. That you were filled with such grace and mercy that your love was willing to do everything that was necessary for our salvation. And we just pray that you would help us to hear all of the words that your scripture gives to us in the context of that great love, that you have wisdom for us, uh, that we don't have ourselves, and that we can trust what you say and, and trust that your purposes for us are good and kind. We thank you for hearing our prayers, that, uh, that we can pause and address you directly without any intermediary uh, because of what your son was willing to do for us. And as we go through the Gospel of Matthew and, and seek to learn all that your teaching says about prayer and what it's like to commune with you, we just pray that you would help us to know you deeper and better, to grow in our trust and our confidence uh, of following after all that you uh, ask of us. And I, I do pray for a special measure of your grace this morning as there's a, a bit of a strangeness in what your son taught in the Sermon on the Mount that to our natural ear we can have a resistance toward and, or a misunderstanding of and so we ask for your grace to even receive uh, the words that you would have for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I invite you to take a Bible and to open it to the Gospel of Matthew where this morning we'll be in chapter 5 and if you're just visiting us today we are as a church family, opening the year by going through the Gospel of Matthew uh, with a specific focus on all that it teaches, specifically or by example, on prayer. And in Matthew chapter 3, we learned about the, the role of repentance and prayer in entering into the kingdom. Last week, we considered what the scripture says about fasting and prayer as Jesus went into the wilderness and uh, committed to an intentional time of fasting in preparation for a testing that would come his way. And his ministry then, after he came out of the wilderness, only grew. And at the end of chapter 4, uh, if you want to uh, simply look back a few verses, in verse uh, 23 of chapter 4, you'll see how quickly now the, the good news of this king and his kingdom had begun to spread. And it says, and he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And so this morning, now we're just going to read two sections of this sermon, but we're going to be in the Sermon on the Mount over the next four Sundays. And it, it, it is a, a challenge always to in any bit of communication to try to make sure we listen all the way through. And there is a sense in which it would be helpful just to read the whole Sermon on the Mount, 
four Sundays in a row, but in the interest of time, we're just going to read it in chunks, but invite you to read all of it, to see that it all goes together and it helps explain itself. But we're going to now read verses 2 to 12, and then we're going to jump ahead to verse 43. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 2. And he, Jesus, opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And now jumping to verse 43. You heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And that's where our reading will conclude. So here we come now to Jesus explicitly teaching on prayer. And the first time that the word prayer is used is in verse 44. And it's the basis of the title for the message, when Jesus says, pray for those who persecute you. And when we hear that, uh, it, I think it's a natural response to be intimidated by that and to say, wait a minute, what did you just say? Did I, did I hear you correctly uh, when you said what I thought you said to pray for those who persecute you? Uh, it begins with the broader, more general command of having love toward our enemies, love and compassion for those who are if you will, on the other side of something than we are. And then it gets more specific when it says, well, how do we love our enemies? Well, one of the ways we do that is to pray for, and not just those who might be uh, on the opposite side of something as we are, but those who are actually against us in what we are for. Those who are actively persecuting or harassing us. And for Jesus to say that we, as his followers, are to pray for those who persecute us. And then when he goes on to clarify a little bit further and then say, yes, just be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. If you're an honest human being, if you didn't already feel like you couldn't do it in verse 44, by the time you get to verse 48, you should be like, okay, I, I don't even know if I should try. I can't be perfect like my heavenly father is perfect. So what is Jesus saying? What point is he 
driving home. Well, one, uh, the word perfect in Scripture can have a couple of different uh, meanings to it, and often we think of perfect as without any flaw or without any mistakes, and that is one way you can use the word perfect, completely pure. Another way you can talk about something being perfected is when something has uh, to take place over time, it's not perfect until it's been completed or done. And so if you put something in the oven to bake and you're checking on it and you're wondering, is it done yet? And you might check in halfway and say, well, it's not done yet. That doesn't mean something wrong has happened, but the work that's supposed to take place has not yet been completed. And you shouldn't pull it out and start eating it until it's been cooked all the way. And so when it comes out and it's fully cooked, you might in that sense say, it's, it's perfect. Enough time has happened and what was begun has now been completed. And then another way that we can think about something being perfect is that sense of being pure, that it is what it is all the way through. Uh, and so if, if we look around in furniture, it's possible that uh, the benches you're sitting on could have not actually be made of, of solid oak and be pure wood all the way through, but they could just have a, a veneer on top of them that looks like it's wood. But if you actually drilled down in it, then you'd quickly discover, oh, it, it looks like one thing, but that's not what it is all the way through. And if we were to say, no, 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 it's, it's actually made of real wood, what we're saying is, no, 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 it's wood all the way through. If you drill down into it, there's never a point at which it's anything else than what you see it as. And when Jesus is telling his disciples to think of their heavenly father in his perfection, it's good for us to listen to everything he says, especially in the second paragraph that we read about the perfection of the father that he is in greater detail explaining to the whole world and what he means by this God to whom we are praying. And so this is what he says that I find helpful for all of us. But I say, do you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be the sons and daughters of your father who is in heaven, for he makes his son rise on the evil and the good and sends his reign on the just and the unjust. And so Jesus who told us to pray for those who persecute us is inviting us to pray to the God, who is a song that I learned growing up, is God the All-Loving. I don't know if you learned that hymn growing up, but there was a hymn I sang growing up called, God the All-Loving is my Redeemer. And God the All-Loving has loved me. And Jesus is saying to his disciples as they're listening to him, that when we are praying to God, the one to whom we are praying is who he is all the time. He's perfect. He is all loving in everything that he does. And so in the Gospel of John, we get explicitly that for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life, that God created this world in love, that God has sent his son to redeem this world in love, that even God one day when he brings an end to sin and wickedness in this world will do it controlled in love. He is never unloving. 
He is love. And we can trust him and his actions. And so he says he generally has this love where he makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends the rain on the just and the unjust. He is always loving. There is an enemy. There is a wicked one. There is a devil. Jesus just confronted him in the wilderness in the previous chapter. But our loving Heavenly Father is the same loving Heavenly Father to everyone in all circumstances. He's not a loving Heavenly Father to some and a different character and a different person to other people. He's not truthful in one area, but goes around lying and misleading in another area. Who he is, he always is all the time. And that's who we're praying to. That's who Jesus is inviting us to pray to and to be like as he's calling us to love those who persecute us, to love our enemies and to pray for them in a general way. To not simply love those who treat us a certain way where love is then always transactional. And so we only give it if people give it back to us. But to love from who we are and the overflow of our character so that we are loving regardless of what the response is of other people. And he's teaching us about his heavenly father in this way. That it our Heavenly Father is not looking around saying, I'm not going to do anything nice for you unless you do something nice for me. You've got to sing a little bit louder. You've got to give a little bit more money. You've got to do, I'm, if you want me involved, you, you have to do all these things to earn my love. No, no, no. Jesus uh, could not be more opposed to that view of his Heavenly Father. He's like, his Heavenly Father, who he knows intimately and personally, overflows with love. And in his love, he is generous. In his love, he takes the initiative. In his love, he pursues reconciliation. In his love, he speaks against wickedness, against anger. And so the parts that we uh, did not, uh, the parts that we skipped over uh, would protect us a little bit for those who initially react to Jesus saying, pray for those who persecute you, thinking, well, wow, if we really do that, Jesus would be giving a lot of license to sin. Like he would be saying that we just have to pray for people who abuse us. We have to pray for people who do all kinds of sin. And I can't reconcile that God would be okay with all that kind of sin. And you, you should not be okay with that. There is a sense in which we skipped over a good amount of what Jesus said. And nobody could read everything he just said in the Sermon on the Mount and say, well, Jesus doesn't care if people are mean to you. Jesus doesn't care if people are abusive. Jesus doesn't care if people are... No, no, no. He cares so much. If you were to go back and read everything that Matthew 5 said, you would see how seriously he takes lust, how seriously he takes anger and violence, and how much in his love for the world he wants us to stop doing those things. He wants us to be protected from those things because he loves us. He desires righteousness within us and righteousness within the world around us. And so we shouldn't, even in this prayer, begin to start thinking that we're going to call light darkness or darkness light. No, no, no. There is a good, there is evil, there is love, there is a hatred. 
And the Bible does not confuse those categories. Jesus actually telling us to love our enemies is acknowledging we have enemies. <laughs> there are people who are opposed to us. Praying for those who persecute us is another way of giving voice to the fact that there is harassment in this world. There, is, there are wicked things that happen. There's deceit and deception and lying. And we don't have to minimize that in any way. And we don't have to justify it. But his call for us to pray for those who do that in spite of that wickedness is calling us what he says is primarily to a greater understanding of who he is and praying to God, the all-loving one, to learn what it's like for us to go about our day and go about this world and not treat people on the basis of how they treat us simply transactionally, but that we ourselves would be loving and that everything we do would flow from a heart of love and that we would exhibit that heart of love in each and every circumstance that's presented to us. And then, when we also consider how, how would it be possible for us to have this, this kind of love that he has for us, we would come to that place not only in recognizing that he has this love for us, but that we're praying to God the all-satisfying one for each and every one of our needs. And that's where we come back to the Beatitudes at the very beginning of the sermon that he gives. We can get to a place of praying in spirit with our Heavenly Father with overflowing love, not only if we see him as the all-loving one, but if he is for us the all-satisfying one. And so when Jesus says at the beginning of the sermon, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they shall be satisfied. Jesus is saying out loud what many of the people had already started to experience. When it says people from all over were coming to him, and they were coming to him with all kinds of needs, and they were finding in him ultimately the hope and the healing that they needed. And so much so that they just kept on coming from everywhere. And so the, the blessing, even in most of these, in the Beatitudes, the, the blessing is not in what is described as primarily the condition, but in the promise. The blessing for those who mourn is that they will be comforted. The blessing for those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness is that the righteous king has come. That it's not his desire in these things to, to sort of extend the suffering that we might be going through. But to announce the good news that there is joy and happiness and blessing for all of us who come to him and find that he is the one that we've been waiting for. And with the variety of hardships we all experience in life that happen sometimes because of our own actions, many times happen because of the actions of other people. When we get to a place where we find God is our ultimate refuge and source of hope and healing, it is in that environment then that we have the capacity to begin to treat other people in a way that we don't simply lash out at them and desire that what happened to us happened to them.
but in coming to God and asking him for his help, asking him for hope and healing and forgiveness, we find the strength to say, Lord, help me in everything that I felt, in everything that I've suffered, in every grief that I've shared. I don't want to wish that on anybody else. I don't want somebody else to go through what I went through. I don't want to go through my day just thinking of somebody else and just hoping that it comes to them and that they get it like I did. In being open and honest about the hurt and the pain that we've suffered and seeking a sense of healing and hope from God and him alone, he wants us to then have that capacity to not spend our days in bitterness, in fits of anger, in jealousy, in rivalry, in what Galatians 5 describes as, as the works of the flesh. But that if we're truly satisfied in God and his love for us, and the way that he and he alone can bring healing to the hurt that we've gone through, that he gives us the ability and the capacity to when the Bible says to love other people, it doesn't mean just to have positive emotions or feelings for them. It means to will their good. We think of love mostly, when we hear the word, we think of it as emotions. And so um, you can't control your emotions. <laughs> you might see somebody and, and have a, a, a reaction, or you might go to a place and, and, and have a way in which your emotions are affected because it's a place that something really bad happened. You and I can't just decide in our minds to control those things, and that's not what Jesus is talking about. To love other people and to pray for them is to will for them ultimately what is good for them. To desire that they get not what's coming to them, but what they need the most. And so I think that's why the initial encouragement that we all, we need to look at the whole Sermon on the Mount together instead of breaking it up in its parts is because it continues to go on and tell us if we ask, well, what should we pray for them? Well, we should pray for them everything that he taught us to pray. And so we're praying to God the all-loving, we're praying to God the all-satisfying one, and we should be praying as he taught us to pray. And if you're saying, well, what does he teach us to pray? Well, that's where we get into it in chapter 6. We'll be there in a couple weeks, so we can't go through it in its detail. But he teaches us a prayer that any one of us should be able to pray over other people. That God, would you help that person hallow your name? Would you enable your kingdom to come and your will to be done in their lives or in that situation? Would you bring your righteousness to bear? Would you help them seek the forgiveness of their sins? And would you help them become the kind of people that forgive other people because they know how much they've been forgiven? Would you help them resist temptation? Would you help them say no to the devil so that they don't continue to do whatever it was that they did? Those are the kind of prayers where we can offer to other people whether we know them or not because they're consistent, we believe, with what our Heavenly Father has taught us to pray for ourselves and for the whole world. And this is, it's, it, this is challenging. To me, this has been a difficult passage to read all, all week. Do I really believe that God is 
all loving in all circumstances? And have I received from him the, the healing and the hope that can only come from him that enables this kind of love? That I feel safer with him than with anybody else. And so when even something like praying for those who persecute you sounds strange, I don't run from it, but I lean into it to say, what are you trying to tell me? <laughs> I think you know what's best for me. You're the one who created me. You're the one who sent your son for me. And so what is it that you're trying to say? We had a situation um, just a few weeks ago in our own home uh, where our, our kids had gone uh, down the street and were playing with other kids. And uh, when they came home, we discovered that Everything had not gone as well as we were maybe hoping. <laughs> and everybody did not come back smiling and, and happy and excited to tell us about everything that happened like it usually did. And only two of our three kids came home. And so then we're like, uh-oh. And we're starting to get a little bit of the story of what's taken place. And then I was sort of debating and hesitating, how quickly do I run after <laughs> the one who hasn't come home. Because this is at night, it's cold, and it's dark. And so I waited a little bit, hoping that there's just gonna be like a 10 second delay, maybe just a little bit longer of a delay, and then I realized, no, 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 I have to go outside and find out what direction this kid has gone. And thankfully, as soon as I got outside, he was standing on the other side of the street looking at our house because I didn't know if he went the other direction and how far I'd have to go. But what grieved me the most was that with whatever potential guilt or shame or fear he might have about punishment, I don't ever want one of my kids to think it's safer or better to be anywhere else than my home. I don't want them to think there's anywhere else on the planet that is better for them than in our home with whatever they've done. That whatever things we're trying to encourage them to do and whatever behaviors we're trying to encourage them not to do, that all of that is flowing from love and, and we're imperfect people and so we, we mess it up ourselves at times and need to say we're sorry at times, but that they would experience an environment in which what they know primarily and as the controlling thing in all other things is love. And our Heavenly Father is like that, and we need to have that view. As Jesus continues to teach and he talks about Israel, he says, do you know how many times I would have gathered you together and you didn't listen? Do you know how many times he's, he's invited us to follow after him? He showed us the way that his purposes for us are good and kind if we were willing to receive it. Because here's the thing, as the gospel story unfolds, our hope rests in our Savior's willingness to pray for those who persecuted him. As strange as this might feel for us, by the end of the gospel, we're confronted with the reality that Jesus himself prayed for those who persecuted him because his love for them was so great. 
and our hope, our healing comes from that great love, from that great God who cares about us in this kind of way. So I'd like to read uh, the very same passages that we've read in the beginning of the sermon, uh, the beginning of chapter 5 and the end of chapter 5, but just from a paraphrase. Uh, this is Eugene Peterson's paraphrase uh, called The Message. And so just listen to it again, said a little bit differently, but hopefully now with a lot more context. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there's more of God and his rule. You're blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. You're blessed when you're content with just who you are, no more, no less. That's the moment you find yourselves proud owners of everything that can't be bought. You're blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for God. He's food and drink in the best meal you'll ever eat. You're blessed when you care. At the moment of being careful, you find yourselves cared for. You're blessed when you get your inside world, your mind and your heart put right. Then you can see God in the outside world. You're blessed when you can show people how to cooperate instead of compete or fight. That's when you discover who you really are and your place in God's family. You're blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution. The persecution drives you even deeper into God's kingdom. Not only that, count yourselves blessed every time people put you down or throw you out or speak lies about you to discredit you. What it means is that the truth is too close for comfort and they're uncomfortable. You can be glad when that happens. Give a cheer even for though they don't like it, I do. And all heaven applauds. And know that you're in good company. My prophets and witnesses have gotten into this good kind of trouble. You're familiar with the old written law, love your friend and its unwritten companion, hate your enemy. I'm challenging that. I'm telling you to love your enemies. Let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. When someone gives you a hard time, respond with the energies of prayer, for then you're working out for your true selves, your God-created selves. This is what God does. He gives his best. The sun to warm and the rain to nourish to everyone, regardless, the good and the bad, the nice and the nasty. If all you do is love the lovable, do you expect a bonus? Anybody can do that. If you simply say hello to those who greet you, do you expect a medal? Any run-of-the-mill sinner does that. In a word, what I'm saying is grow up. Your kingdom subjects. Live like it. Live out of your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously toward others the way God lives toward you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the conviction that it brings to us that as you invite us as your followers as members of a new kingdom in which you rule and reign that we are to be those who have the capacity to love our enemies to pray for those who persecute us 
but we admit and acknowledge uh, the many times we fail in that. And so we need your grace even to follow your, your counsel. And we thank you that you do give us that grace. We thank you that you love us unconditionally. We thank you that you do not wait upon us, but that you proactively provide for us everything that we need to follow you. And we pray that through your teaching, you would expose our hearts to see the ways we still are in need of healing and hope that comes only from you. The ways that we are still waiting to experience the blessing that you have pronounced, that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. God, would you please satisfy our hearts? Would you show us that you are ultimately what we long for? so that we can be free to love the way that you've called us to love. We thank you that your, your son was willing to pray for those who persecuted him. We thank you that he was willing to forgive us for all of our sins. And we just pray that you would help us to feel increasingly at home in your kingdom, joyfully doing all that you tell us to do. In his name we pray, amen.